tell me, what are your thoughts on clickbait? Do you know what clickbait is when you're um, scrolling through Facebook, when you load up YouTube and the homepage is there with all the thumbnails and you have this title, something like Boris Johnson's secret note to Liz Truss. You'll never guess what it says. Well, you won't guess what it says because I just made that up. There is no such note. But you know what I mean? These clickbait titles that sort of draw you in but then fail to deliver. What are your opinions on those? Well, there's a sense in which Acts chapter 9 is like one of those clickbait titles. Saul of Tarsus meets Jesus of Nazareth. You'll never expect what happens. Only the truth is, you will never expect what happens. It's utterly beyond our imagination. Because we've already met Saul. Saul's been introduced to us at the end of Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And he's not the sort of person you expect to play a big part in the life and the flourishing of the church. Acts chapter 7 was Stephen standing up, declaring, defending his faith in Jesus. And it's his murder. It's his killing by these people who hear what he has to say and rather than embracing life in Jesus, they turn towards death. They stop being people in a sense. They gnash their teeth, they lust for blood, they pick up stones and they kill him. It says in chapter 7 that they laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then at the start of chapter 8, it says this, that Saul approved of their having killed Stephen. Persecution broke out in chapter 8. Did you remember? John helped us look at it, how um, threats and pressure and opposition made the church spread far and wide. And no doubt Saul was one of the people who was at the forefront of that pressure, of that persecution. He approved of the killing of Stephen and in his heart he wanted to snuff out the name of Jesus. He hated Jesus and the claims that he made. He hated Jesus' people and the claims that they made about Jesus. He loved his own ways. He loves his own ideas. He loved his own religion and wanted to do everything in his power to oppose Jesus and the church. And in Acts chapter 9 verse 1, we read of this plan that he hatches, not satisfied simply to um, persecute the church in Jerusalem, but as the church spread to follow and bring destruction wherever they went. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's people. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Let's just get this image of Saul clear in our minds as we start. He is someone who will go to extreme lengths, who will go to out of his way to make sure that Jesus' name is dragged down, that Jesus' followers are thrown in prison, that Jesus' followers probably will be tried and convicted and killed in the same way that Stephen was. But one of the glorious things about Jesus is that he cares for his body. 
The, the church is Jesus' body. And as Paul's soul will later reflect at the end of his life, no one hates their own body but cares for it. And just as Saul was sort of launching this plan to, to crush the church, Jesus was preparing a special way to protect the church and for the church actually to flourish. Paul, Saul, is about to meet Jesus on the road to Damascus. Chapter 9, verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard this voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, this voice replied. The one that you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and then you will be told what you must do. There were men travelling with Saul and they stood there speechless. They heard the sound but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground but when he opened his eyes he could not see a thing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus and for three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. A transformation of Saul has begun, but it's not instantaneous. Sometimes we can think of the Damascus Road experience as a, as a description of someone who is instantly turned around, changed, transformed in their life. Well, there is going to be a dramatic change in Saul, but it's by no means instantaneous. For three days he waits blind and he prays and he fasts and he's trying to make out what on earth has happened. This wonderful light that has blinded him. This voice that's declared that he is Jesus, the Lord, who, who is being persecuted by Saul as he chases down his people. Saul, if you like, now is primed and ready for change, but he's still waiting for that change to come. Verse 10, it says this. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, Ananias answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man, about this wolf who is hungry for the flesh of the church, who is thirsty for the blood of those who follow you. I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to the Lord's people in Jerusalem. I've heard that he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Do you really want to send me to him? The Lord answered Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. And he placed his hands on Saul just as the Lord had told him. And he said to him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who has appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you so that you may see again. So that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately it says that something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He who was blind was now able to see and he got up and he was baptized and he took on food and he regained his strength. 
Now, I don't know how you normally think about followers of Jesus. I don't know how you sort of categorize them in your mind. Sometimes we can have this idea that those who believe in Jesus are the ones who want to believe in Jesus. Those who are willing to believe in spite of the evidence. Those who are willing to believe because they've got nothing else going on in their lives. Those who want to believe because they've grown up in Christian families or they've grown up in a Christian country, in a Christian context. Sometimes we can sort of describe and imagine people who believe in Jesus as being that way because they're somehow inclined towards faith. That their desire has always been to be a people of faith. And that if we don't have those things, then we could never believe. But let me explain to you the grace of God. The grace of God is not to go out and find people who are already turned towards him. The grace of God is to go and to find those who are in the deepest of darkness and draw them out into light. To go and find the wildest of beasts, those who hate God, who want everything about Jesus to be rubbed out of history, to have nothing in them that, that would want to find faith and to open their eyes to the truth that in Jesus, that is the grace of God. And that is the grace of God we see in the transformation of Saul. He is certainly not someone who wanted Jesus to be the Messiah. He is certainly not someone who wanted what the disciples were saying about Jesus of Nazareth to be true. And yet when he encountered Jesus, when the grace of God was at work in his life, he could no longer deny it. And the grace of God more than that doesn't just take someone who is um, distasteful of or distrusting and make them favorably disposed. No, the grace of God turns him round and turns him round completely. I love the way Calvin comments on this conversion of Saul. Calvin said that it, it was not just a wild wolf being turned into a sheep. No, the grace of God was such that this wild wolf became a shepherd of God's people. At once, verse 20, it says, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus was the Son of God. What, a, what an utter transformation to take place. Saul was one who wanted the name of Jesus scrubbed out, snuffed out, erased from history. And now in baptism, he has taken that name onto himself. He's baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he's public with it. He's declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. The grace of God is such in this man's life that he has turned utterly around from death to life, from light to dark, from wolf to shepherd. And it's not on the basis of anything that he's done. Another way that we can sometimes categorize people who have come to find faith in Jesus is that they're that way because they are good people. Or because they think that they're good people. Maybe we think that God will accept us because we've said the right things or done the right things. Surely Saul stands here as an example to us that God's grace extends even to those who are furthest from him. Whose whole life was committed to, to doing away with him. Who was part and parcel of some horrendous misdeeds. Of the murder of faithful 
honest, innocent people like Stephen and others. And that the grace of God even was able to come into his life and to rescue him and to save him. That's what we mean when we speak in our circles, when we speak in the church about the grace of God. It is something that takes us from a place so far away, so utterly other, and turns us all the way around. Utterly, utterly transforms us. More than that, this story, what happens when Saul meets Jesus, isn't just the shocking revelation that someone can be so utterly turned around but it's the revelation of the power that that transformation can have in the lives of folks around him. Because the believers, they didn't, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that this opponent could come to faith. It was so fantastic. It was so beyond their imaginations that they doubt at every turn. Ananias couldn't believe it. The believers in Jerusalem couldn't believe it when he came. Surely this is just a tactic. But you know who did believe? who did believe were those who opposed Jesus still. And once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus was the Son of God, and all those who heard him were astonished. They asked, isn't this the one who was causing havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? Hasn't he actually come here to take them prisoners to the chief priests? And yet, Saul grew more and more powerful and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus and he proved to them that Jesus was the Messiah. Many days had gone by and there was this conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they were keeping watch of the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers, those who had come now to trust that he was a faithful preacher and teacher of Jesus who had come to faith through him, his followers took him by night lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And then he came to Jerusalem and he tried to join the disciples, but likewise they were afraid of him. They were not really believing that he was disciple, but Barnabas, that son of encouragement, that one who was willing to, to risk himself financially and now physically for the good of the church, he went and he brought Saul to the apostles and he advocated, he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and how the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had been utterly transformed from someone who hated Jesus to someone who preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord and he talked and he debated with the, with the Grecian Jews, the Hellenistic Jews. They tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea. They protected him and sent him off to Tarsus. And then we read this by Luke. The church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria, that whole region, enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. They learned to live in the fear, the reverent awe of the Lord. They were encouraged by the Holy Spirit just as Jesus had promised them. And the church increased in numbers. Can this really be true? This change in him is utterly beyond belief. And yet that transformation is powerful, isn't it? Isn't it just like God to take that which is darkest and use it to shine his marvellous light? When a light appears in the night, don't we see it all the more brilliantly and purely? A torch held up, 
the top of a mountain during the day we barely notice, but when it is pitch black in deepest, darkest winter, that same light can be seen for miles around. And the transformation in soul here is powerful. It baffles people. It scares the believers. It, it, it invites and encourages some others into faith and it provokes that same reaction in the Jews as the, the faith that Stephen had before. They opposed it and they wanted to silence this voice now that was speaking boldly and powerfully and convincingly for Jesus. The power of transformation is a genuine thing that our lives, that our testimonies, that the change that exists within us will be a, a witness for Jesus. So it causes me to ask this question, dear church, this morning of how changed are we really? How changed are we? How transformed have we been by the grace of God, by encountering Jesus for ourselves? Have we just been turned round a little bit? Or have we been turned round the whole way? Have we been taken from darkness into sort of the murky, morning, dusky sort of light? Or have we come into that brilliant, blinding light that is Jesus Christ? Have we been taken from death into sort of a semi-conscious state? Or are we alive and awake in Jesus? Because our witness, the witness of the church, the health and the growth of God's people depends on us being a changed people. And my fear sometimes is that there is not enough change in us, in you and in me. That my life isn't particularly different from those that I rub shoulders with. That my life isn't dramatically different now in comparison to how it was lived before I encountered Jesus. If we learn anything from Jesus of Nazareth meeting Saul of Tarsus, is that the change has to be a powerful change. It ought to be a dramatic change. And that that is a good and powerful thing. So I ask again, how changed are we? How different are we? How much do we stand out and stick out for the name of Jesus? You'll notice as well that it's not just a sudden change, although the change is suddenly dramatic, but it's a constant change. Paul continues to change. He continues to grow. A couple of times it speaks about him more and more powerfully declaring Jesus that he preached fearlessly, that he spoke boldly, that he is someone who more and more learnt and changed and growed. And I wonder for us, not just how much have we changed, but are we still changing? Are we still growing? Or are we satisfied where, with where Jesus has brought us to? We shouldn't be satisfied with where Jesus has brought us to because we're not there yet. We are being changed from one degree, degree of glory to the next, but we shall not finally arrive until we see him and meet him face to face. And yet, we need to constantly be on the move and to be growing. So how changed are we? For those of us who have encountered Jesus, 
for those of us who have been taken from these what their wild wolf-like state of opposing God, of living for ourselves, of following and chasing anything and everything other than him, to trusting in him. Who've experienced God's grace, coming to faith, not because we wanted to or because we deserve to, but purely and simply because God is gracious and God is loving and God is kind and he comes and he meets us and he takes us and he turns us round. How changed are we by Jesus? There's a couple of ways we can make those sorts of assessments. We can compare ourselves to the world around us. Do we look any different? Do our priorities look any different? Do we react and respond to life's circumstances any different? Do we speak about those in positions of power any differently? Do we seek out justice for the oppressed? Justice for the poor, care and concern for those who have not, any differently to those around us? Do we seek to extend grace? Do we lift up the name of Jesus or do we just look exactly like the people around us? That's one way we can measure the change. Or we can have in our mind's eye Christians. Christians like those whose testimonies are recorded in the scripture. Christians like those who we've encountered in the book of Acts, like Barnabas and Stephen and Philip and soon to be Saul and others. We can compare ourselves. Do we respond like these people? When threats are made against us for our faith, do we pray in the same way that the early church prayed? For boldness. For courage to carry on in spite of the risks to life and liberty and limb. How changed are we? We can figure that out by comparing ourselves to some of the great saints of old or the great saints around us and to the world that we're so comfortably sitting and living within. And how much are we changing? How much of the change that we experience in our own minds and our own hearts is it? His mission accomplished. How much do we desire to continue to grow in the grace of God? To come into the light. To be brought to life. To live and to look like Jesus. We say, don't we, in our church, that our mission, our desire, is to know Jesus more. To be changed by that knowledge into his likeness. How satisfied are we with this picture, with this relationship that we have with Jesus and the impact that it's had on us? Brothers and sisters, I think this story, Saul of Tarsus meeting Jesus of Nazareth, what happens will shock you, should shock us. It should shock us and reveal to us what the grace of God is really like, what the life of following after Jesus should really be like. There are so many ways and means for us to grow in this grace and to continue to change and to be like him. And we go over them week by week and we as a church extend them as means and ways of experiencing God's grace. Meeting together regularly, studying his word, praying to him, seeking his spirit, encouraging one another in the Lord. Living as he's commanded us to live. Trying it on and seeing how life is better when it's lived after following like Jesus. But it all starts with us wanting to respond to this grace. 
How changed are we? Have we been changed and have just simply stopped? The grace of God is such in our life that change should be a constant in our lives. As we more and more come to know Jesus and to be transformed by him. My hope and my prayer is that even between now and Christmas, the change in us here in Amonford would be as dramatic as Saul on the road to Damascus. And that those perhaps who are apathetic would become passionate. Those who are passionate would become powerful in their witness. Those who are still hostile in their thinking would come to be friends. Friends of God through Jesus Christ. Lord, by your Spirit, that same Spirit that came, removed the scales from Saul's eyes, that called him out of darkness into light, that encouraged him instead of hating the name of Jesus, was to be baptised into the name of Jesus, Lord. By that Spirit, come, shape, change, affect us, transform us, we ask. And through our transformation, grow your church, grow your kingdom, grow your glory and your name. We ask 